Good morning once again. I'm glad you've all joined us today. Once again, for those of you that maybe have come in a little bit late, my name is John. I'm the pastor here. And uh, we are in a really interesting series for our church right now. We started it last week, and I want to encourage you, if you weren't with us last week, to go back and watch or listen to last week's message. You can get them on iTunes or on our website. Um, But it creates an important foundation even for what we're talking about today. Although you don't have to have listened to last week's message to understand what we're going to do today. It just creates an important foundation, which I may reference back to a couple of times as we're talking. This entire series is about the tension that exists for those of us who would call ourselves Christians. And that tension is between a dual citizenship that we hold. Because we believe that we are citizens of the United States of America. I assume most people in the room are citizens of the United States of America. But we are also citizens of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is coming. And I know there's a lot of questions about what is that kingdom like and what does that mean. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. We're actually going to show the difference between the kingdom that we see here on earth and the kingdom that Christ is going to be bringing later. And I think we're going to talk about that in a way that's going to make it more tangible and practical than many of you have ever seen or heard before. And so we believe that we hold this dual citizenship. We have to understand how to live in the United States of America as citizens of this country, but also as citizens of uh, the kingdom of God. And so we're talking about that tension through this series. And I thought there was a really interesting topic we could talk about or a question we could answer to see this tension that exists between the two or a way that we could hold both at the same time, I guess, is a way of saying that. And that's to answer this question. You ready? Is the American dream biblical? Is the American dream biblical? Now, I I actually have done some research on this um, quite some time ago because about three years ago, a church, another church called The Point, asked me to come and preach at their church. And I said, yeah, what do you what what do you want me to preach on? And uh, they said, whatever you want. And I was like, no. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to do that. Give me something to preach on. Tell me what, tell me what you would like to hear. And uh, so the pastor came back and he said, would you answer this question? Is the American dream biblical? And I thought, <laughs> I thought, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You know, I've never thought about it before. I guess I just always assumed that it was, you know, because most of, I feel like most of the ideals that we hold as a country are biblical. And I, I thought, I don't know, that seems like a simple question. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized how not simple it was. <laughs> That this is actually, maybe this is a little bit of a dangerous question to even ask because most Americans would say, yes, of course it's biblical. Well, I don't know. So what we're going to do is we're going to dig in a bit today and we're going to find out whether it is. And I know some of you, maybe you're, you're, uh, maybe you're not a Christian or you're new to the faith or you're, you know, you're just trying to figure out what God is all about or whatever. And you're like, well, I don't even know if that's an important question to ask. <laughs> what does it matter if the American dream is biblical or not? And the reason that we ask that question, the reason that we ask that about everything, is such and such biblical or is this or that biblical, is because we believe that the Bible is the word of God, that, that God inspired the people that wrote the Bible and that it's true. And And I can speak from my experience. I've been a Christian for quite some time. And you know what I found out is that this this always works. When I do what's here, it works. And when I don't do what's here, it doesn't work. So every time that I've messed up or made a huge mistake in my life, it's not because I've been doing this. It's because I've been doing my own thing. And so I found in my life that the best question I can ask about anything is, is this biblical? 
And if it is, then I can move forward with it and embrace it. And if it's not, then I'd better stay away or it's not going to turn out well for me. And so that's why we ask that question. I just find that it's work. So I try to run everything that I do, everything that I believe, every decision that I make through this filter, if I can, to understand is this something that God's happy with or, or not. So we're going to do that same thing with the question, is the American dream biblical? Now, the first thing we have to do is, is define the American dream. Because if I went around the room, and I found this as I was doing research many years ago for this message, I, I asked a bunch of people, what is the American dream? And I got tons of different answers. There were some core elements that were similar across them, though. So let me read to you three official definitions of the American dream from three reputable sources or well, you, you decide whether they're reputable. Um, the first one is the Oxford English Dictionary, and they define it this way. The ideal that every U.S. citizen should have an equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, determination, and initiative. So that's the Oxford English Dictionary. Now here's Webster's Dictionary's uh, definition. An American social ideal that stresses egalitarianism, that means equality, okay? Egalitarianism, I had to look it up. I'm not being condescending. I had to look it up. That's me. All right, egalitarianism, which means equality, and especially material prosperity. And then Wikipedia. This is where you can decide whether this is a reliable source or not. All right, Wikipedia defines it this way. Although I think of them, this is probably the best definition, in my opinion. A set of ideals in which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success and an upward social mobility for the family and children achieved through hard work in a society with few barriers. So they're a little wordy and we have, you know, I got to work through each one of them. But what I found as I read through those three dictionaries um, is that, and I uh, listened to other people's definition of the American dream, that there are kind of, there are three core ideas. Okay. Three core ideas. And those ideas are, Determination, that we have to work hard. Opportunity, that there aren't barriers and there's equality. There's, there's determination, opportunity, and then the last thing is prosperity. The American dream, that if, I, that if I work hard, the opportunity's there, and I can get the house in the neighborhood with the 2.5 kids and the white picket fence. That's the American dream for most people as we would define it. And, and I love that Wikipedia in, introduces this idea of upward social mobility, because I think that's, that's at the core for a lot of us, too. The idea that I could do better than my parents did. The idea for parents that your kids could do better than you did. And I think about, I, if I can, I flash back to, um, to my ancestors when they came over to the, the United States of America, which actually weren't even the United States of America when they came, but the, the, the New World or America. The, my ancestors came from Germany in like the late 1600s, roughly, came over to the United States, settled in like central Pennsylvania, you know all them, those folks, that's where I come from. And a uh, bunch of farmers is what they were, that's where I come from. And they came over and, and you can almost see in their eyes as they're riding on the ships in probably terrible conditions to get from where they were to where they wanted to be, the opportunity, the land of opportunity that they were moving to, where they thought, well, I'm held back here. And, and part of it was, was religious, being held back religiously. Part of it was being held back societally and economically. Said, I'm gonna break free from that and I'm going to go to this new world and it's going to be the land of opportunity. And if I work hard enough, there's opportunity and I can make something of myself. That's really the way when I think about the American dream, that's what I picture. Even today, there are people who are trying to get in our country with those same starry eyed ideas, 
right? We have, we have all of this conversation about immigration and border control, which I'm not going to get into up here, but uh, we have all these thoughts about it. But we have people that are trying to get into our country, crossing the Sonoran Desert, and we, don't, we can't even count how many of them are dying every single year, trying to get from wherever they are into our country because they see the land of opportunity and they think, if I can just get there and I can work hard, there's opportunity for me and I could have a better life. I could prosper for myself and for the rest of my family. And actually, I don't know, this is not a political statement, don't hear that. But I think some of the people trying to get into our country right now believe more in the American dream than some of us do. All right, because they, they think that there's opportunity for prosperity and they're willing to chase after it. And I think it's interesting, you know, when we think about America, we think, you know, we're the, we have the American dream, right? This is, we are the, we're the most prosperous nation on the, on the earth, right? That's what we think, that we have, the, we have the most opportunity. We're the most free nation on the entire earth, which is kind of funny because it's not even true. Uh, we, we have that ideal within our society, but it's not necessarily something that plays out in our society the way we think that it does. The most recent study of upward social mobility, that idea that children doing better than their parents. Um, they, the most recent study was done, or results were compiled anyway, in 2012, and they made a list. And we're on the list. We're just not at the top of the list. And before, you know, I know charts can sometimes be hard to read. The, the most free, the most upward social mobility is not the country at the top, Slovenia. <laughs> it's the country at the bottom, Denmark. So the United States of America, among developed uh, nations in the world, ranked 13th in upward social mobility in this study. So it's not necessarily the land of uh, opportunity that we may think it is. So it seems, actually, if you really want to pursue the American dream, you should move to Denmark. It's your best chance. But nevertheless, we have this idea woven into the fabric of our society, right, that we have this freedom. And so the question is, is it biblical? Now, I'll tell you, at first glance, it sounds really good. I mean, think about the elements of it, right? Uh, Opportunity. Well, you look at Jesus' life and you see that he wasn't so hot on social classes. He didn't like the idea that people would be cast aside by society and ostracized to stay there. He had a a pattern of of building up and restoring people who were in humble places to, to, to dignity and worth. Right? He, he took women and made them a part of his ministry. He, he spent time with lepers and with beggars and those who were sick and hurt, who were ostracized, and he brought them back into the fold. So I don't think that God is down with the social class thing. So the idea that there would be opportunity in our society, I do think God is on board with. God is very clear in the Bible that he values hard work, that we should carry our own weight, that we should work hard and be industrious. And so the idea that we should work hard and, and all of that, I, I absolutely think that God is on board with that idea. And then the idea of prosperity, that might, was where we might get just a, like a little tricky here. But what you find when you read through Bible, the Bible is that God doesn't seem to have a problem with people having money. There are plenty of rich people in the Bible that, you know, we might go to the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus said, you need to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then you can come follow me. We could use that as an example. But there are plenty of people in the Bible who are rich that God never said to give all their money away to. Solomon is one of the richest men who ever lived on the face of the planet, you know. So uh, there was a rich man named Nicodemus and because he had wealth and had a tomb, he was able to give it for Jesus to be buried in. So there's nothing wrong with prosperity necessarily on on its own. And so the idea of financial prosperity, I think God is fine with that if we face it the right way. 
And so we've asked the question, and I want to twist the question if you don't mind. We asked the question, um, we asked the question, is the American dream biblical? And the answer is, eh? Sorry for the disappointment. I don't, I don't think that the American dream is either biblical or unbiblical. I might say that it's abiblical. Okay. I don't think there's much to be said about it. I don't think it's so much the American dream itself as much as what we do with it. It's not the thing, and you're often going to find this is the case. Like we talk about money the same way. Money's not the thing. It's what we do with money. It's how we feel about money that's the thing. It's not the American dream. The American dream provides opportunity, and that's fantastic. It's what we do with that opportunity that really matters. And I think, and this is where our personal definitions start to get a little different when it comes to the American dream. I think that the American dream has morphed over the years. I think it's changed. I think it's been altered. When our founders created this great nation, their intent, we talked about this last week. If you want to hear all the, the, all the supporting evidence for this, listen to the message from last week. Their intent was that the United States of America would bring honor and glory to God. And they created the freedoms that we had so that that would happen. But what's happened with the American dream is that instead of it bringing glory and honor to, to God, we have used it to bring glory and honor to ourselves. And that's a problem. And that's not going to work. I think, um, believe it or not, the, the great astronaut Buzz Aldrin said it really, really well when he said this. I've got it on the screen for you. I think the American dream used to be achieving one's goals in your field of choice, and from that, all other things would follow. Now, I think the dream has morphed into the pursuit of money. Accumulate enough of it, and the rest will follow. For most Americans today, the American dream has become American greed, and that is a problem. I think God is on board with the idea of equal opportunity. He is not on board with the idea of using it for our own self-interest, our own kingdom. And we have to be very careful because not only has that idea changed in our culture, but it's changed within the church. American greed has become infused into the American church and it has made the church into something that it should not be. You might wonder what I'm talking about. Let me, let me describe it. And actually, before I get to what's happening now, let's look at when it happened before. So we're going to go and we're going to look at a city called Ephesus. And I think that when you're looking at scripture, if you're looking for the closest parallel you can to the United States of America, Ephesus is the town. It was like the great melting pot of the day. There were people of all different cultures, all different races, all different religions in one place. They had a ton of money. They were very affluent because of their position geographically and because of the trade that they had there. And I think that's a pretty good comparison between us and us and them. And while the, while the Bible says absolutely nothing about the United States of America, I do think that when we look back at the city of Ephesus, we could say pretty confidently, if God were to say something specifically to us, it would be what he said to them. And so we're actually, we're not going to go to the book of Ephesians, where you might think. We're going to go to the book of 1 Timothy. 
Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And unfortunately, greed had snuck into the church the same way it has for us. And so we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. All right, if you have your Bibles, you can look there. If you don't have one, if you don't have it on your phone um, or a print version, we have it on the screen so you can follow along. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, Timothy's the pastor in this town, but there are people that are trying to come in from the outside and teach people other things, and that's what he's dealing with. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. He's saying, if anyone comes in and they teach you anything other than what I've told you and what you see in the scripture, what you know is true. And apparently he's having to say this because people are coming in and they're teaching things that are not true and not inconsistent with the scripture, that they're even coming in and they're saying that what Jesus said wasn't true. So there are people that are coming in and trying to change the teaching of the church. Uh, he said, if anybody does that, he's proud, knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. You know how people will take and mince words or twist words to make them mean what they want them to mean, and then they can suddenly transform something into what they originally wanted to say anyway? Terrible study of the scripture, but people will do that. They were doing that here, all right? Arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose, and here's the key, this is what I want us to see clearly today, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain, financial gain, of getting rich. That godliness is a means of prosperity. And he says to Timothy, from such, withdraw yourself. So you got to stay away from that stuff. Because there were people that were coming in and that were seeing this new thing and seeing an opportunity. They were seeing a platform and they were seeing opportunity. And they thought, if I can get in here, and if I can teach these people these things and get them to circle around me, I'm going to get rich. And I hate to say it, but that's happening today just like it was then. We, we have a massive problem within the church in America with thinking that godliness is a means of financial gain. And it starts at, it starts at the top of leadership within churches in America, pastors and boards that think that that prosperity is success in the church. That, that, that look at the opportunity, that look at the platform and want the attention. There's a real problem, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because it's, it's not you, but there's a real problem in America with the celebrity culture within the church. We have superstars. We basically have rock stars within the church. And they get on massive platforms and they make massive amounts of money. And there's a lot of them. And um, I don't, I don't want to go too far with this. But it's, it can be a strong motivation to get into ministry. Because I want that platform. I remember meeting once. Uh, I, would, I was at a different church. And there was a, a high school senior who was about to graduate. And um, he asked if he could have lunch with me. And I said, sure, man, absolutely. We, I'd love to have lunch. He said, I'm thinking about getting into ministry. I was like, great, that, that would be fantastic. So we go and we have lunch and he's asking me about, you know, what I do and, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I said, so what is it? Like, why do you want to be a ministry? And he's like, man, I don't know. I just like see you up on stage and like everybody's watching you and you're teaching and everybody's just eating it up. And I just think I could do that. And I was like, well, no, that, no, 
<laughs> no, don't, 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 don't do it for that reason for sure. Because I promise you, it's not all you think it is for one thing. But, uh, but I was like, okay, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, let's, let's back it up. And we backed up, we talked about a little bit of motivation and he said, okay, so what do I need to do? And I was like, and in my head, my wheels are turning. I'm like, I got to make sure that this, that this kid if he does make this decision, he does it for the right reason and not because he thinks he's going to get a bunch of attention or celebrity. And, uh, and so I, I said, well, here's what you're going to do. He said, what do I need to do? I take religion classes and that kind of stuff at school. I was like, well, yeah, get there when you get there. I said, I said, the first thing you need to do is when you go to school, he was going to a state school. So I was like, you're going to take general ed classes your first you know, year there or whatever. Anyway, so I said, just go. I said, the first thing you got to do is get plugged into a church and start serving, man. Like just find a church there, start serving people without your name on anything. Get no recognition and no credit for anything that you do and see if you can do that for a year. And if you can do it for a year, then we'll talk about what classes you need to take and what, what path you need to take. He came back at the mid-semester mark. We had lunch again. I said, did you find a church you get plugged in? No. Back at the end of the year, did you get plugged into a church anywhere? No. The church is not a pathway to financial success. I tell you that from experience. But it's not a pathway to financial success. And there are too many people that look at the church as an opportunity to get not just money, but credit or recognition for themselves. It has a very strong allure because there's a stage in a lot of cases. And that can be very attractive. We've got to be very, very careful about that. And we have to be very careful of people who would tell us that godliness or faithfulness to God is a means to get money. And, I, and I'm putting it very directly. It's never said that directly when it's taught to us. It's taught to us very slyly. Like, like oh, you're up for a promotion? That's fantastic. God wants you to have that promotion. And God wants you to have that promotion. And if you don't get that promotion, it's only because you didn't have enough faith in him. It's because you didn't pray enough. God wants you to have financial success. And so if you're not getting it, it's because you're doing something wrong. Not because he doesn't want you to have it. If you're sick or you're depressed, it's only because you haven't prayed enough. It's only because you don't have enough faith or you're not working hard enough. The problem with those ideas is they're not true. And they're not even remotely biblical. They're not even remotely biblical. Uh, let me, there's a quote, I think it's a fantastic quote from a British author, his name's George Monbiot. The quote was, if wealth was the inevitable result of hard work and enterprise, every woman in Africa would be a millionaire. <laughs> if, and let me, I'm gonna, let me, let me you know, apply that for us for a minute. If faith and hard work were the path to financial prosperity, my grandfather would not have died with only his house to his name. Because he's one of the most faithful and hardworking people I've ever met in my life. So it's not true that the path to financial success is just faith in God. And so, faith in God and hard work. And so the American dream is... Um, is uh, by hard work, I have the opportunity for financial prosperity. That's what I've boiled that down to. By hard work, I have the opportunity for financial prosperity. But this is what we've taken, morphed that together with the church and created the Christian dream. That's what I call the Christian dream. By faith and hard work, by faith and hard work, I have the opportunity for financial prosperity. By faith and hard work, I have the opportunity for financial prosperity. 
It's a twisting of the truth. And boy, it gets us excited because if we could, if we could, if faith in God and working hard for him would mean that I could have more money, then that might be a path worth pursuing because ultimately what I want is more money. And there's the problem. If, if wealth were the inevitable result of faith, then Jesus must not have had very much. If wealth were the inevitable result of faith, then Jesus must not have had very much. Because Jesus didn't have a house. Did he have the opportunity to have a house? He sure did. Did he have one? No. Did he have a garage he could put two camels in? He did not. Did Jesus have a retirement plan, a 401k, a Roman government-sponsored retirement plan? No. He, he had 0.0 kids and no picket fences whatsoever. In fact, there were people that were wanting to follow him, and he said, whoa, 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 you better, you better think about this first, because I don't even have a place to lay my head. I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. So faith and wealth are not tied together. They are not connected. And the problem is that when we try to connect them, it's usually because we want the wealth, not because we want the faith. So Jesus, if the American, if the American Christian dream is biblical, Jesus failed miserably to achieve it. I want you to know there's something better. Now let's keep hearing from, from Paul as he writes to Timothy. He's told him, you got to stay away from these people that think that, that godliness is a means of financial gain. They're just messing it up. you got to stay away. And then he said, the next thing he says, verse 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Here's the trick. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Listen, I have seen this. I've seen this in my friends and my family, people that I care about and love, whose goal in life is to be wealthy, to be to be set for life, to have their dream, whatever. And because of that, they chase after foolish schemes and, and, and lies that are sold to them about their lifestyle and how they can make money and all this stuff. And they just end up worse than they started. And he's saying, you got to see this. You got to know if you're chasing after money, that's what's going to happen. And 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Pierced themselves. They did it to themselves. And I've seen friends make decisions like that and then endure financial hardship, and they're like, oh, Satan's really getting me. I'm like, no, you really got you. That was dumb, man. You shouldn't have done it because you were chasing after money. That's where your heart was. The scripture gets, this scripture gets misused a lot. They say money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is just a thing. Money's paper and coins, and now it's all digital, right? It's not a thing. It's what we do with the thing. It's how we use the freedom that we have. He said they've hurt themselves. And this is really hard because our society, it feels like our society as a whole, is built on this pursuit of wealth now. It's built on the desire to have more and more and more stuff. To have more and more and more influence. 
to have as many followers as we can and to live in the right neighborhood and drive the right car. And if we don't, something's wrong. But that is not the way that God looks at us. And it's not the way that God looks at our life. And it's not the way that God wants us to look at our life. Verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness Don't pursue money. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Not temporal life. Not life now. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. See, as Christians, we are called to something better and higher and longer. Something that will fulfill us and actually give us joy and peace that will carry us through whatever situation we're in, whether it's good or bad. And that's to know that the pursuit of money, the pursuit of wealth is not worth pursuing, but there is something better. We have two citizenships. One is here but the other is there and there's better. And the way the kingdom of God works is not the way the kingdom of this world works. You will not be great in the kingdom of God based on your bank account here. You will not be great in the kingdom of God based on your rank in your organization. You will not be great in the kingdom of God based on what tax bracket you're in or what socioeconomic status you are put into by our culture. Greatness in the kingdom of God is found by righteousness and faithfulness to God. And we believe that we have secured our place in that kingdom by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. We shouldn't get to be there. We shouldn't get to be a part of it because of our sin, because of how we have betrayed God, how we have turned our back on him and tried to take his seat. But in his mercy and his love and his kindness, he sent his son to earth and his son died to pay for our sin. And because Jesus did what we couldn't and paid for our sin, we can turn to him in faith and we can have eternal life. He took that sin to the grave and he rose again, proving power over sin and death. And because of that, I have a spot in the kingdom of God. And so you have a spot if you believe in the kingdom of God. And so we need to put our energy and our attention and our focus there on getting prepared for what's coming, not for what is. And the beautiful thing about the United States of America is that we have the freedom to pursue then, now. All those same freedoms that allow us to pursue money allow us to pursue righteousness in the kingdom of God as well. But we have to put our mind and our heart in the right place in order to enjoy that freedom the way that we should. Paul says this to Timothy. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. There is a better dream. 
than the Americhristian dream. And I'm just, for simplicity's sake, calling it the Christian dream. And it's this. By faith and hard work, I have the opportunity for spiritual prosperity. By faith and hard work, I have the opportunity for spiritual prosperity. It's my faith that secures my spiritual, my position in Christ in the kingdom. And it's my hard work that allows me to experience a full reward when I get there. The work of serving God and serving other people. The American dream is based on the idea that I can make something of myself. But the biblical dream is based on the idea that I should make myself nothing. Then with no work on my part, God makes me something. And with hard work on my part, I can make other people something. And that's a better dream. I live it, I'm telling you. That constant pursuit after getting for yourself is just leaves you unsatisfied. It's hollow and it's shallow and it's not worth it. It's not worth spending your life on it. But to pursue what is eternal, to pursue what is spiritual, to pursue serving God and serving other people is absolutely worth it. And it will absolutely fulfill you the way that pursuing money or success by worldly means never could. It is far, far better. Next week, we're going to talk about what that kingdom looks like. What that means, when I talk about eternal rewards and when Paul talks about it here and he said, storing up a good foundation for the future, what does that mean? What does that actually look like? I think it's a lot more tangible than we give it credit for. We're going to talk about that next week. Really looking forward to that. But boy, I tell you, I watch people pursue the American dream with their eyes on money and it is, it's disheartening. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite shows is Shark Tank. Does anybody watch that? Anybody watch Shark Tank? I love that show. Um, it's just something about the strategy of it and the, the, um, the, the deal making that they do and all of the, I, I just love it. I actually have a business degree. That's what my undergraduate degree is in. It's in business. So I kind of eat that stuff up, um, even though I've never actually worked in business, but I still like it and it still, it still gets me excited. All of it is really, um, really intriguing. I love watching it, but something really struck me recently. I was watching an episode of Shark Tank and this guy had invented, it's sort of clever, um, it was a clip that goes on the top of your phone, okay? It clips on the top of your phone, and then it has another clip for a tennis ball. So hold a tennis ball. Anybody know what it's for? Selfies of your pets. Yeah, dog selfies. That's what it was for. Because he figured out that, that he could never get his dog to look at his phone for a selfie, but he could get his dog to look at a tennis ball for hours, right? So he just figured out a way to affix the tennis ball up on top of his phone. And he said, you know, you can take selfies with it just like that. And you can take regular pictures. I don't know what you call those anymore. Regular pictures like that. And, and he was, and they were like, they were, so they're digging into him about the business. It's a clever idea, right? They're digging into him about the business of this thing. And all of a sudden he gets emotional and starts crying, I mean, breaks down in front. This happens, often happens in the Shark Tank. I think it's the, the pressure of sitting in front of a bunch of you know, venture capitalists who are looking to invest in your company. That's what the Shark Tank is, by the way. I didn't mention that earlier. All right, so he's sitting in front of these venture capitalists 
And, uh, and he starts breaking down crying. He's like, I've just poured my whole life into this product, and I believe so much in it. I've sacrificed so much. And he's, like, losing it. And it's like it dawned on me. And, like, one second after I got over the cuteness of all the dog pictures, I was like, this is sad, man. This guy has given his life to a tennis ball on top of a cell phone. And he, is, he has wrapped up. I mean, he may be a fantastic guy. I don't want to say anything, you know, I don't want to like disparage the guy. But like, it was just sad to me. It, uh, like his dream is going to end when America wakes up and realizes they could just hold the ball over the phone. I tried it or like yesterday. I could hold both at the same time. So I don't need to buy the clip. I just need a tennis ball on my phone and I could do exactly the same thing. So his American dream is going to become a nightmare pretty quick when people figure that out. But it's just sad to watch someone chase after money, chase after money, chase after money. And here's the thing, and this is what people who have a lot of money will ultimately tell you. You're never satisfied by it. It never works. It never gives you what you want. You just end up wanting the next thing. All it does, it never, it ne- it never satisfies your hunger. It just creates more. And so you have to have and have and have and have and have. And you're always, it's a carrot on a stick and you're always chasing it. Well, what I want you to know is that when we are chasing the spiritual things, when we're chasing after spiritual prosperity, it's not a carrot on a stick. You're going to get it one day. It satisfies you even as you pursue it. It is worth it. And hey, the same freedom that affords that guy the opportunity to get rich off a tennis ball phone mount allows me to faithfully work hard to serve God and build up others. And I think that's awesome. I think it's a better dream. And so if you want to know, you know where you stand on this, a self-assessment, then let's look at those three core things that we found within the definitions of the American dream, and, and let's see where we stand. So let me ask you three questions based on those foundations. First, am I working hard to bring glory to God, or am I working hard to bring glory to myself? Which one is it? Second question. Am I using my freedom and opportunities to serve other people? Or am I using my freedom and opportunities to serve myself? And third one. Am I pursuing financial prosperity? Or am I pursuing spiritual prosperity? Let me tell you that the biblical dream is really living. It is the better way to live. It is full life. It is very rewarding. And it doesn't matter how much or how little money you have. You can have a lot or you can have a little. It's irrelevant. We learn to look at prosperity, financial prosperity as a tool that we use to accomplish our ultimate goal, which is spiritual prosperity. It's funny... To me, and, I, and if we embrace this dream, we really start to look like Jesus. And it's funny to me that non-Christians don't generally have a problem with Christians who look like Jesus. <laughs> they have a problem with Christians who look like the world. So let's not look like the world. Let's look like Jesus. We can show them something different, not greedy, not worldly, not showy, not fake. And the same freedom that affords people the opportunity to chase the almighty dollar allows us the freedom to chase Almighty God. 
All right, so let's pray. Let's pray and ask God to, to focus us in and show us what we all need to do with this. God, we thank you so much, first of all, for who you are, your goodness, that you are true, that you are loving, you are kind, you are just. We thank you that uh, even in your perfection, you look at us as sinners and love us, that you would give your son for us. I pray, God, someone makes the decision today to accept you as their Savior for the first time. They believe in your son's death on the cross for them and that he rose again. And As they put their faith in you today, God, you forgive them for their sins and you give them the spirit to lead them and guide them. God, we thank you that you've loved us enough to stay with us, to guide us, to give us your spirit, to lead us, to empower us, that you've given us your word to direct us. And as we live in a culture that is so focused on material wealth and possessions, that's so focused on the glorification and the elevation of ourselves, we need you to continue to direct us and give us eyes to see how your kingdom works. That we would commit our life to bringing honor and glory to you and not ourselves. That we would seek after spiritual prosperity, not financial prosperity. That you would help us to be content with whatever situation you have us in right now, whatever you've given to us. And that we would pursue whatever it is you want for us, no matter how much or how little that may be. I pray that you would give us perspective to see our own hearts. They are so deceitful. They trick us into thinking we are something we're not. So give us spiritual eyes to see our own heart, to see Am I chasing after financial prosperity or am I chasing after spiritual prosperity? Am I working hard for my own glory? Or am I working hard for your glory? Am I using my freedom for the benefit of myself or am I using my freedom for the benefit of others? Help me to see that so that I can follow you and serve you better and better and better and so that I can experience life that you've designed for me to, let, to experience. And more important than any of that, that you receive the honor and glory from my life. Help us each to see that. And then help us together to grow in faith, to grow in love together, to grow in service together, to grow in generosity together, to grow in kindness together, to grow in boldness together, because we know that you have put us together as a family to pursue your will for us. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.